We're going to be uh, continuing on in our series in the book of Revelation, if you'd like to get your Bibles ready there. Uh, We're walking through the seven churches, the seven messages to the seven churches. And last week, Dwayne did a bit of an introduction for us where he took the second half of chapter one and kind of unfolded uh, what that means. And it was basically a, a magnificent, a glorious image of Christ where he's described in some very odd ways as we would think of them, but they all have significant meaning. Uh, and really, we're going to come back to a lot of those because what, what goes on to happen throughout the seven letters is uh, at the introduction of the letter, the first verse fixes in our minds this image of Christ. It takes one of the aspects of Christ that we saw in chapter 1 and applies it to certain churches and kind of lays a foundation based on this image of Christ that he's then going to communicate a message to them. And we'll see that a little bit this morning as well. Uh, And if you see in your bulletin, um, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We're going to be looking at the church of Ephesus this morning. Um, So please prepare your Bibles there. And uh, Ephesus was a church that was marked by its fading love, a church whose love had began to fade. Have you ever experienced a sincere love for somebody that began to fade? This could be a romantic love or a love for a good friend or even a love for a child. Often at the beginning of these love relationships, we have uh, this heightened experience of love. We're often swept away by this person. Our love for them and their love for us is at an all-time high. We seek to serve them selflessly just because we love them for no other reason than that. There's no ulterior motives for our loving them. We didn't love them because we had to, but because... We wanted to. And this stage in any relationship is what we like to refer to the honeymoon stage, right? And that's not just in uh, marital or romantic relationships. You can apply that to other love relationships as well. But what typically happens as time begins to progress in these relationships and they set into real life? Well, I think typically what we see is we see the love for that person that we once felt begin to decrease from what it once was. Perhaps over the course of time, our feelings for this person begin to fade. Maybe we even begin to serve them because we feel like we have to or because we want something from them. We continue to love them because we desire something from them. Without careful, intentional efforts to sustain our love for any individual or anything, our love for them will inevitably fade. And I think that this is an experience that we can all identify with to one degree or another. And this is the exact experience that the church in Ephesus was facing. Their love for Christ began to fade. And I think this is a very common experience for Christians, for us, for all of us. We have this honeymoon stage in our relationship with Christ just after our conversion when, man, we're just involved in everything. We're serving Christ. We're serving the body. We're connected. And we do it all just because we love Christ. 
And we're so filled with joy at what he has done for us. And then we set into the nitty-gritty, the everyday Christian life. And what begins to happen? Our love begins to fade. Now, the Ephesian church didn't just have a fading love for Jesus. They were doing some things right, which we're going to look at as well. And if you look at your bulletin insert, I hope you see the way we're going to handle the text this morning. Our aim is to receive Jesus' commendation of the church in Ephesus and to heed his warning to them. Now, my aim here in in saying to receive Jesus' commendation is actually to receive how it challenges where we are as individual Christians and as a church, and then also to heed his warning to them to rekindle our love for him. So what we're going to look at first is, as I said, the image of Christ that he presents to the church in Ephesus. And then we're going to look at how Jesus commends the church for its defense of the truth. Thirdly, we'll look at Jesus' rebuke of the church for its fading love. And then Jesus concludes by exhorting the church and giving them a promise, a promise to those who conquer. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text now, and then we'll pray and ask the Spirit to come and help us. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false." I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, Unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we come to you this morning seeking truth seeking to be changed and transformed by your word. Spirit, make our hearts soft, make our minds sharp to see and perceive what you have here for us. Come and make us willing to accept that our love has faded and rekindle our love for you this morning. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Christ uh, begins here in his message to the church in Ephesus with first saying who it's addressed to and then giving them an image of himself, which uh, is the foundation for the message that he gives them. So first we'll deal with who it is addressed to. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now there's uh, 
about a hundred different interpretations. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but there's a lot of different interpretations on who this angel is or what this angel actually represents. And the reason why I'm going to distinguish here a little bit is because uh, Duane and I see just a little bit differently on this. Now, I don't think it's overly pertinent to the message of the letter or any of the letters because they're all addressed to, addressed to the angel of the specific church. I don't think it's really pertinent to the message, but I thought it would be good for me to distinguish uh, where we are. Uh, and so Duane holds the position that this angel of the church is uh, the pastor or leader of the individual church, one of the elders. And I'm, I'm really torn in that direction in a lot of ways, um, but I think that uh, this reference to the angel of the church is more of a symbolic reference to the church itself. Uh, and in, in using this term angel to describe them, it kind of puts emphasis on their heavenly nature, on their spiritual nature as a church. Uh, and one of the reasons why I go this way over it being a physical representation uh, from the church in a pastor or an elder of sorts uh, is because these letters are addressed to the church as a whole. These are letters written not to individuals, but to corporate churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, so on and so forth. And so I think that to interpret this as a way to talk about the church is that the letter is addressed to the church as a whole, and that makes sense of the nature of the letter and its corporate uh, nature. And so it's in keeping with that uh, that I take this interpretation. But as I said... I don't think it's pertinent uh, for the message that is given to the churches. So now we continue on to the image of Christ that is given to us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of Him, that is Christ, who holds the seven stars in His right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, in order for us to understand the significance of Jesus holding in his right hand these seven stars and walking among the seven golden lampstands, we have to know what these things represent. Look back with me in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus tells us. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, my interpretation, we're understanding that both the angels refer to the churches and also the lampstands. So we see that the stars that Jesus hold in his right hand is a representative of the church. That he's holding the church in his right hand. And what this image should convey to us is an image of possession of authority, of control, of power. This is the way that God's right hand is often talked about in Scripture, to convey to us His authority, His control over something. And here He is holding the seven stars, the seven angels, the church, the churches in His right hand, signifying that He has possession and authority over them, that He is the one who governs them. But not only is Jesus holding them in His right hand, He also is walking among 
the seven golden lampstands. And this is to convey to us the presence of Jesus in the church. And this doesn't just apply to Ephesus or any of these other churches. You realize that when you come here and we gather together as a people, Jesus walks among us. Do you understand that? That Jesus is here now? His presence is here with us. That is what this represents, that he walks among his churches. And so the image that is fixed in our mind as this message to Ephesus opens up is one of God's power and authority and control over his churches and also his active presence among them. And this image here is going to give power to Christ's commendation of them and also his rebuke of them. Because they will know that his commendation is true because he walks among them. He knows what's going on in his church. And the rebuke will hold power in view of this image and that they know that Christ is in control of them. He has authority over them and that strengthens his rebuke of them. So having now given us an image of his power, authority, and presence, Jesus commends the church for their defense of the truth. And we see this in verses 2, 3, and verse 6. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And then in verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, beginning up at verse 2, Jesus points out three different things that he is commending the church in Ephesus for. First, he commends them for their toil, for their labor. And I think that Jesus isn't talking generally here. I think he has something very specific in mind and we ascertain what that is as we continue to read on. What is the nature of this work, this labor that they are doing? I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So what is this work, what is this toil that the Ephesian church is doing? It's an active guarding of the truth of God against these so-called would-be apostles and their teaching. They were laboring to know the truth of God and to defend His truth against those who would contradict it. The Ephesians were greatly concerned about their theology, about the truth of God's word and about protecting it. And this manifests itself in the example that we get of them repudiating and putting away false apostles, that they tested these false apostles and their teachings and they sent them away, they rejected them. Now, the Ephesians were very convinced and convicted of the truth that they possessed. And their staunch defense of the truth against their pagan culture 
would have brought upon them suffering. It would have brought upon them pushback, which we obviously see here in the text. And this brings Jesus to his second commendation of them. He says, you have patiently endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. Now, this patient endurance was needed because of the opposition that they faced to what they believed. They were being opposed because of what they believed. And therefore, they needed to patiently endure that opposition, remaining unmoved in the truth. And indeed, they were. Jesus adds in verse 4 that the reason they were unmoved was for the sake of his name. The Ephesian believers understood that what they believed and how they defended that was a matter of honoring Christ or dishonoring Christ. Are we going to believe what he has said and defend it? Or are we going to cave to our oppressors? And although this work of defending the truth was hard, the church did not compromise the truth. And for this, Jesus commends them for not growing weary. They were standing strong in the truth. And thirdly, he commends them for not bearing with those who are evil. He says you cannot bear with those who are evil. Now understand this. This is very important for where we are in our day. Jesus commends the church for their intolerance of those who are evil. Of those who do what is evil. Of those who proclaim to be in the church and yet are wicked. Of these false apostles. Now we're not certain who these evil people were or what they practiced, but this reference to these evil people likely refers to the Nicolaitans which we see in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now again, we don't have much information on these people or what they believe from secular literature or from the Bible. But most scholars believe that they were a sect of Christianity that promoted sexual immorality and idolatry in their worship services. And this inability to bear with, indeed their hatred of the works of the Nicolaitans, shows us that the church in Ephesus was convinced of the truth of God and was ready to defend it. And Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for three different things. And I think they are all extremely pertinent for us today. First, he commends the church for their labor in knowing and defending the truth. How much of your time is spent laboring for the truth? How much of your time is spent laboring to know this book and what it says? To become convinced of what is in here? How much of your time goes to meditating on the Word of God and faithful study of it. You see, the Ephesians, they toiled. They worked hard. They labored to know and defend the truth. 
Well, you might say studying the Bible is hard. Yeah, it is. That's why it's called labor here. They toiled to know the truth of God's word. Do you know your Bible well? Well enough to discern what is true and what is false? You see, the Ephesians, they needed this. They were surrounded. They were, they were like the ca- a capital city that was part of one of the seven wonders of the world with a famous idol that was there. They had people coming and going all the time. They were in an extremely pagan culture. That's why they needed a firm grasp on their theology. And we see the opposition to that in these false apostles. But I would submit to you that we need it more than they do. We have ready access to so much teaching, to so much preaching, to so many thoughts, to so many ideas. Do you know your Bible well? Well enough to discern what is true and what is false. Secondly, Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for their patient endurance and suffering for their beliefs. The Ephesians suffered for what they believed because they had a public faith. They had a faith that was out in the marketplace, so to speak. Is your faith a public or private faith? Do you seek to keep your faith private for fear of criticism? Because you fear a loss of reputation? Or perhaps you know that somebody is going to challenge what you believe and that's why you keep a private faith. The Ephesian church had a public faith and Christ summons us to have the same Thirdly, he commends them for their conviction of the truth, which led to an unwillingness to compromise with evildoers. Do you have a conviction about what you believe? The church in Ephesus was uncompromised in the face of those who lived immoral lives and preached what was false. Do you hold to what you believe with enough conviction to stand uncompromised in the changing, in the midst of the shifting sands of our culture? Do you have enough conviction about the Word of God says to stand firm on it? The church has compromised on sexuality, on gender, on marriage because we have lost a conviction of what the Word of God says. We either never had it or we've lost it. What are you standing on? Do you have enough conviction to endure the onslaught of the culture as it comes? John Piper puts it succinctly and uh, perhaps a little offensively when he says, wimpy worldviews produce wimpy Christians. And that's the truth. 
unbiblical theology, belief about God that is not rooted in his word, produces weak, fragile Christians that are tossed to and fro. Do you have conviction about what you believe? Now, Jesus, knowing the efforts of the Ephesian church, commends them for their labor in knowing and defending the truth, their endurance and suffering for the truth, and their conviction to stand on the truth uncompromised. But it's not all good in the church at Ephesus. It continues on where I'm assuming the church would have liked it to stop there, but it doesn't. He continues on to rebuke them for their fading love. Verse 4. You're doing so many things well, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, Jesus here structures his uh, rebuke in this way. First, he accuses them. You have abandoned your first love. And then he calls them to return. He calls them to remember, to repent And to return to doing the works they did at first. And then he warns them what will happen if they do not repent. So we have an accusation, a call, and a warning. First, the accusation. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And the first thing that our minds should be drawn to is is asking the question, who or what is the object of this love that the Ephesians have abandoned? Who or what is the object of it? There's a lot of interpretations on this as well, but I think that uh, two are primary, and they are these. The Ephesians have lost or abandoned their love for Christ, for their Savior. Secondly, they have abandoned their love for others, for unbelievers and their fellow believers alike. And a third, which I think is appropriate and right, is that it's both. That they have lost a love for Christ and for others. Now it seems to me that it must be both. That they have both abandoned a love for Christ and for others. Because love for Christ and love for others is inseparably linked together. And we see this in Scripture Mark 12, 30 through 31, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, and he says this, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we see a binding together of love for God and love for neighbor. John, referencing this, says this in 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
They're inseparably tied together here so that you can say, if you do not love your brother, you do not truly love God. And if you love God, you must love your brother. So we see here that the Ephesians have abandoned their love for Christ, which leads to them abandoning their love for each other. And Jesus' accusation here should be very disturbing to us. Extremely disturbing. Jesus has already praised the church for its prizing and defending the truth, but now he rebukes them for abandoning their love for Christ and his people. Jesus is telling us that it is possible to have a passion for the truth and doing good works while simultaneously having a deteriorating love for Christ within us. That's troubling. That we can be reading our Bibles and praying and going to church and going to ABF and community group and involved in this and that while on the inside we're growing further and further away from Christ. But this is where the church in Ephesus was. Is this where you are? So he accuses them, and now he seeks to call them to repentance. He calls them to remember, to repent, and to return. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Jesus now calling them to go through a mental exercise of remembering what their love for Christ used to be. He says, remember. Remember how my apostle Paul came and preached to you of my great love for you. Of the extent to which I I went to redeem you. How I gave my own life for you. Remember. Remember at the beginning When you first believed how you were so passionate for me. How you gave up your evil practices and you burned your wicked books just because you loved me. Remember how sincere and fervently you used to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. What has caused your love for me and your family to grow so cold? This is a very unique letter. This is a letter of a husband writing to his wife who has abandoned his love for or her love for him and pleading with her to come back. You see that in the text. You see the emotion here. Beloved, do you remember our wedding day? Do you remember when we committed our lives to each other? When we were united together, do you remember those first days and weeks and years where we shared such a beautiful bond of love? Do you remember the way you used to look at me, the things you used to say? What has caused your love to grow so cold toward me? But remembering is not enough. Because in our love and in the Ephesians' love moving away from Jesus, 
This is an offense against him. It's a sin. And so he says that you must repent. Repent. Remembrance helping to lead you to repentance, giving you an understanding of how far you've actually fallen. Repent of your lack of love for me and my people. You must rekindle the love that you had for me at first. Remember, repent, and return. You see, repentance always includes a return of sorts. Especially for us Christians who often begin well but then begin to slip away. Repentance often means going back to doing what we did at first. And that's what he calls us to. Now, I don't think Jesus is telling the church to do the exact same works or the exact same things that they did at first. I think he is telling them to return to working from a sincere heart of love for him. Continue to do the works that you're doing now, but do it with a love for me. Stop walking in a loveless religion. Do the works that come from a heart of love for me. Do the works that clearly show you love me and my people. What is Christ calling you to remember this morning? Have you gone back? What does repentance look like for you? What does a rekindling or a returning to the works you once did look like for you? How is he calling you to a passionate return to love for him? We have the accusation, the call, and the warning. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. Now we remember that Jesus said that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. And so understanding this, the judgment that will come upon the church if they refuse to repent and return to God is that he will remove them as a representation of him in the world. And this judgment follows perfectly with the rebuke, the accusation that he has just given to them. Because we know that the primary characteristic that defines us as a church is love for Christ and his people, is it not? That's what makes us a Christian. That's what shows us that we are different from the world. The world hates Jesus. Christians and the church are to love Jesus. That's what defines them at their most basic level. If the church loses its love for God and for one another, it ceases to be what a church is at its most fundamental level. And that is a lover of Christ and a lover of of his people. Now we must understand this morning that this warning does not just apply to the church in Ephesus or to the other churches to which it was written. This is written to us. If we lose our love for Christ and for his people, he will judge us. He will judge Fairlong. The church will cease 
to live and be vibrant and relevant when we lose our love for Christ and for each other. And we will die. So Jesus, having accused, called, and warned his church, now concludes by pleading with the church to heed his words and motivates them with a promise. He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you heed this accusation? Will you by faith accept that Jesus is not just talking about churches in the first century, but he's talking about us, that he's talking about you? And you have to receive that by faith. You have to receive that this applies to you. Will you search your heart to see where your love for Christ has faded? Will you heed his words to rekindle your love for him, to repent and to return to the love that you had for him at first? Jesus, your faithful husband, calls you this morning to love him again. And very graciously, he gives to us a beautiful promise for those of us who conquer in this. He says, to him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus closes his message to us this morning with a promise, and it is this. If we conquer, and what this conquering means is that we rekindle the love we once had for him and we continue in it, we will spend eternity in the presence of our Savior. In the paradise of God. What a beautiful promise that is. Does that motivate you to want to rekindle your love for Jesus? Pray that it does. I would like to conclude this morning by praying a prayer to God, asking him to aid us, to give us strength, to help us return to him. And this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. And for that reason, I think it's particularly fitting. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, he prays for the Ephesian church that they would be strengthened to remember Christ's love for them and to continue in love to him. And so pray this with me. Let us plead to God for the strength to rekindle our love for him. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, 
he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.